Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to talk about some of the songs and artists we've discussed previously on the show in focusing on things that happened in music during specific years. When we do that as music fans, we have a very general sense of what happened when. So, for example, we remember that Nirvana's Nevermind record came out sometime in the early 90s or that Elvis Presley passed away sometime in the late 70s, because we associate these things with other chronological events in our lives. So whatever school year it happened to be, having babies, starting a career, moving, whatever it is. What I wanted to do was look at certain years and talk about specific things that happened in music during that year. In addition to the simple stuff, like this record came out or that person went to jail, I also want to discuss the really interesting, bizarre, fascinating stuff that took place, regardless of musical genre. Because all of these things contribute to what the year felt like from a musical perspective, in the same way that we talk about what specific songs feel like with our guests here regularly on the No Sleep Till Sudbury show. My longtime listeners know that I'm obsessed with digging deeper where music is related in the interest of learning new things. And this approach is really no different. Digging into the events, and the formative history surrounding the music that makes our skin vibrate. And considering how far back we can go, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. This week I want to talk about 1978. There was a lot going on in this year. Brand new musical genres were forming, groundbreaking ideas were hatched, and of course there was some bizarre behavior too. Disco, rock, and punk were all battling for supremacy, and bands were crossing over. The Rolling Stones single, Miss You, had heavy disco leanings, and it actually went to number one in 1978 for a couple weeks. And in April, Kiss released a re-recorded version of their 1974 song Strutter with a disco beat, a flashy new guitar solo, and a more prominent sounding hi-hat. And this was a trend that would continue on Dynasty, the next album Kiss would release the following year, 1979, to cash in on the disco craze. Punk was changing in 1978 with the Sex Pistols, who formed in 1975, playing their last show on January 14, breaking up three days later. Early on that tour in the U.S., bass player Sid Vicious was deeply addicted to heroin, and during withdrawals, he routinely started fights with fans, security, photographers, even with his own bodyguards. In San Antonio, Vicious hit an audience member over the head with his bass, and in Dallas, he spat blood at a woman who climbed on stage and punched him in the mouth. On January 17, the band split up and went their separate ways. The Vicious was immediately hospitalized in New York. Johnny Rotten also found himself in New York, more or less broke. Richard Branson, who was head of Virgin Records at the time, agreed to pay for his flight back to London. And around that time, Branson met with members of Devo and actually tried to get them to accept Rotten as their lead singer. Devo declined, and Rotten wasn't really interested either. Rotten would go on to revert back to his birth name of Johnny Lydon, forming Public Image Limited and having a little bit of success with that. Vicious began performing as a solo artist with his girlfriend Nancy Spungen acting as his manager. On October 12, 1978, Spungen was found dead in a hotel room that she was sharing with Vicious with a stab wound to her stomach, and Vicious was arrested and charged with her murder. Vicious made bail, but it didn't take him long to find his way back to prison. This time it was Rikers Island, and it was for assault. Shortly after being released on bail, he had hit Patti Smith's brother Todd in the face with a beer glass, 
He spent 55 days in jail in Rikers for that. And while he was there, he detoxed from heroin and pills cold turkey. So on the night of January 31st, 1979, his friends hosted a party to celebrate his release and his newfound sobriety. Just after midnight, Vicious died of a heroin overdose. He was 21 years old. Johnny Lydon had this to say about his former Sex Pistols bandmate. Poor Sid. The only way he could live up to what he wanted everyone to believe about him was to die. Terry Kath of the band Chicago also died in 1978, but in a very unusual way. Kath was regarded as Chicago's band leader, an American rock band that consisted of seven members formed in 1967, and they called themselves Chicago Transit Authority. He was described as one of the most criminally underrated guitarists to have ever set finger to fretboard. Kath had a self-admitted history of drug and alcohol abuse, and while he had a high tolerance for both, a friend later recalled Kath telling him, I'm going to get things under control because if I don't, the stuff is going to kill me. Chicago bandmates have indicated that he was also increasingly unhappy, but they denied that Kath was suicidal. Kath developed a fascination with guns, and by 1978, he was regularly carrying one. On January 23rd, in the company of one of the band's roadies in Los Angeles, Kath was fooling around with this revolver. He was spinning the gun on his finger. He put it to his temple and he pulled the trigger. The gun wasn't loaded. Kath then picked up another gun, a semi-automatic 9mm pistol, and was about to do the same thing when his roadie asked him to stop fooling around. Kath responded, don't worry about it. That's not loaded. And he took out the empty magazine from the gun, showed it to the roadie, put it back in. Kath then put the gun to his temple and pulled the trigger. Unbeknownst to Kath, while the clip was empty, there had been a bullet in the chamber of the gun. He died instantly from the gunshot. He was 31 years old. In May of 1978, The Who played their last performance with drummer Keith Moon, a musician renowned for his wildly self-destructive antics, smashing up hotel rooms, throwing television sets over balconies, and driving Rolls Royces into swimming pools. Moon was a unique character, and drummer, and his playing closely matched his personality. He would play faster or slower based on his mood, which frustrated his bandmates, and he put drum fills in places other drummers wouldn't think to put them. The funny thing was that unlike his drummer peers of the day, John Bonham and Ginger Baker, Moon hated drum solos, and he refused to do them at Who shows. During a Madison Square Garden show in 1974, the rest of the band spontaneously stopped during one of their numbers and let Moon take a bit of a solo. He stopped and yelled out, Drum solos are boring! In September of 1978, Moon was deteriorating quickly. He was taking heminevrin to treat his alcoholism. As a result, he could barely play the drums. On September 6, Moon and his girlfriend, Annette Walker Lax, had dinner with Paul and Linda McCartney and then returned home. Shortly after, Moon overdosed on him and Evren and was found dead the following day. Police determined that there were 32 him and Evren pills in Moon's system. He was instructed by his doctor to take no more than three a day. Six of the pills were digested, a sufficient amount to cause his death and the other 26 were undigested when he died. Moon's death occurred right after the release of Who Are You? 
On the album cover, he's sitting on a chair backwards to obscure a significant weight gain. And on the back of the chair are the words, not to be taken away. All right, it wasn't all doom and gloom in 1978. Some other stuff also happened. 78 was the year that Kiss did something no other group had attempted to do. Have each member of the group record a solo record, all on the same date, September 18, 1978. The records were unified by a similar pattern. Each one had the face of the member on the cover with the Kiss logo in the corner. So this exercise was done to ease the tension that had been escalating in the band. It was an opportunity to give each member a chance to go out and do their own thing while still using the Kiss brand as a safety net. Seemed like a no-lose proposition, given the band's massive popularity at the time. But some interesting and even unexpected things happened. Each album had a unique sound with Ace Frehley's and Paul Stanley sounding the most like a Kiss record might, Peter Chris decided to go the R&B route, and the critics were the least kind to his album. It was the only one of the four to release two singles, neither of those actually charting. Gene Simmons went full-out elaborate. There's some Kiss-ish sounding songs on it, but there's also some very Beatles-esque sounding pop songs, and even a cover of When You Wish Upon a Star. Now, this made more sense after we all found out Simmons' life story and how he came to America from Israel, not able to speak English as the child of a single mom. But at the time of the release, in 1978, it just seemed really peculiar. As a kiss-mad kid, I, of course, bought all four of these records. Jeans confused and disappointed me slightly back then. I suppose because I wasn't expecting such enterprise from a Kiss recording. I just ended up listening to side one over and over again, actually, because that's where all the non-enterprising material was. The same way that I just continued to listen to the first side of Guns N' Roses' debut, Appetite for Destruction, rewinding side one over and over again, and completely ignoring side two when it first came out. Interesting side note tangent about that, actually. Tom Zutat, GNR's A&R rep for Geffen, deliberately buried what would be the band's biggest hit from that record, Sweet Child of Mine, on side two. And he intentionally did that because he wanted to showcase the band's gritty image first, worried that a song like Sweet Child of Mine would compromise that image. It did backfire a little bit because it would take two years before the public discovered the song and propelled the band to superstardom. But GNR's grit was Tom Zutat's favorite thing about the band. Turns out it was mine too. Anyway, Kiss's record label Casablanca spent almost $3 million on the marketing campaign for the Kiss solo records, and they announced that they were shipping 5 million copies, which guarantees platinum status. Now, this was a shrewd move because it meant anticipating that all of those albums would in fact sell. They didn't. None of the albums sold particularly well, really. Of the four, Frehley's album was the most successful, and it contained the only hit single of the four, which is a cover of New York Groove, originally performed by a band called Hello. I always thought Frehley's solo record sounded most like the music that Kiss fans actually wanted to hear. Not surprisingly, the success of his record was a major contributing factor to his exit from Kiss shortly after. 1978 was a pivotal year for a couple of different musical genres, with New Wave blending the basic tenets of rock and punk with a more poppy, rhythmic, electronic, almost disco-y vibe. The new wave movement was similar to punk in terms of what it stood for, 
which was in essence an uprising against bands like Styx and REO Speedwagon and the tired arena rock of the late 70s. But New Wave was focused more on an artistic ethos than punk was, in the sense that it incorporated a distinct visual aspect that became apparent in fashion and later on MTV. And it was an interesting time in music because New Wave was so all-encompassing that it actually confused people in terms of what it really was. To me, New Wave was like this really interesting metamorphosing exercise that transmuted the limitations of garage rock and punk by infusing experimentation, but it still kept that edgy, jittery, anti-establishment up-tempo ethos. The end product was rich with variation. There was protopunkers like Devo. There were bands that would later be recognized more in a classic rock vein like Blondie and The Pretenders. There were experimental bands like Talking Heads, the morph of new romanticism from Elvis Costello and the police into groups like Duran Duran, and later on the spawning of synth-pop groups like Pet Shop Boys. There was a lot going on. 1978 was central to the evolution of rock and punk into what would eventually become bands like Wham!, and it was an exciting time in terms of records. Elvis Costello's This Year's Model television's second record adventure, debut albums from The Cars and The Police, and Blondie's Parallel Lines all came out in 1978. New Wave finally fizzled out in the late 80s in favor of harder rock, with MTV eventually favoring hair bands over New Wave-oriented stuff. And on that topic, it's worth noting that Van Halen's first record actually came out in 1978, as did the first rough demo called The Soundhouse Tapes, from a little band from the UK that had just formed in that same year, 1978. The band was Iron Maiden. So there you have it, folks, some highlights from a great year in music, 1978. The new wave movement could likely take up an entire episode, and maybe that's something for me to consider down the line. But for now, I bid you goodbye, at least until next week. I hope you enjoyed the show. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury, and I'm Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subway, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>